that uh, uh, here and, and all of you. Um, such a wonderful community. Last night we had a full discussion on culture care and the questions that uh, it will raise, um, moving away from culture wars metaphor, which we have been embroiled in for the past uh, 15 years or even more. Um, into seeing culture as an ecosystem to see if we can think of different ways of approaching the very difficult issues that we face in society um, as believers uh, who followers of Christ. Um, how are we to love our enemies, to do good to, to good to those who persecute us? You know, by the way, I, I love this, this setting. I, I, I feel like I'm back in camp and, um, you know, I was watching these, uh, looking at these uh, signs. I, I think they're wonderful. I think we should do a conspiracy thing where um, we replace all the stop signs with that. <laughs> like, wouldn't that be amazing? Like, you know, you're driving and there's a stop sign, you recognize it and you say, pray? <laughs> Oh, yeah, pray. <laughs> I think that would be a great idea. I'd I, I like to uh, start a movement. Um, so let's look at this passage. I'm reading from uh, NIV here. Um, and this, is, this comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where Jesus is laying out what his message is about. Right? So this is a culmination, as it were. This is the, uh, um, the ultimate. Uh, if you have to know one, if you have to know one thing about his message, what would that be? And, uh, I, and I call these passages uh, the impossible commands of Jesus. The impossible commands. Why, why is that? Well, you heard this. Uh, that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And this is the way the world works, right? We all know how that works. But I tell you, Jesus tells us, love your enemies. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And we can even pause right there and say, well, Lord, that's pretty hard. You know, if you could think about right now uh, people you struggle with in life, the people you would avoid at all costs, the people that have hurt you, have wounded you, maybe somebody who's bullied you over the years or in, in some way, uh, difficult people in our lives. And you think about these images uh, of ISIS and what's going on in the world, terrorism and all that's happening that, that creates fear, and, and we read this, and we, we say to ourselves, what is he trying to say? Because I struggle with just being good, you know, following the rules, and, and trying to follow God's command. And here's Jesus coming in, and... Uh, Oh, it's almost as if he opens up this whole another territory of, about the nature of God, the law, uh, community, what we're to do to follow God, to have 
God and the Holy Spirit search our hearts. And this reality, right, that we, we face every day, uh, we failed to do many times that we hold things against our neighbors and even ourselves. Sometimes we, we don't know how to forgive ourselves. And we live in this zone of um, compromises all the time and, and betraying especially the ones that we love the most every day. And we read this and we hear Jesus giving us this impossible command to love your enemies. Now, one thing that this is not, that what Jesus is not saying is to be a doormat. You know, just let the world step all over you. No, this is rather an uh, active, engaged work of imagination toward our neighbor, toward ourselves, and toward God. Because we have to remember that as St. Paul thought back on these statements that Jesus made, he knew what he was saying. He knew what it meant that Jesus would call us to love our enemies. Because he was one. <laughs> he was the one persecuting the early church. He was the one who stood by and, and really commanded people to throw rocks at Stephen as he was, became the first martyr to die for his faith in Christ. He knew that he was the enemy of God, so he later wrote in Romans that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. While I didn't know what I was doing, while my, my, my whole being worked to undermine the early church and to determine to prove that this message that these Jewish followers of the way was transmitted to the world so confidently that I was, I was determined to smash this into bits and I was on my way to Damascus and found myself inexplicably being, meeting the resurrected Christ. And something happened in Paul's heart at that moment, something that is radically supernatural, transformative, cannot be explained in human terms. And so his letters talk about what he experienced. So he knew, Paul knew, and the question is, the first question that we have to ask ourselves is how much do we know that we stand in direct offense against God? Now, in a polite company, <laughs> this is a hard thing to say, right? Um, we're all good people. We try. Um, we want to be good Christians. But there is this enmity within us, and I know it um, when stressful times, when I am forced into a corner, when I am dealt an unjust hand, 
that side of me comes out, right? I cry out, this is wrong, and I have been wronged. And yet, it's the same breath that I cry for justice. I may be aware of myself, made away by the Holy Spirit, that there's a side of me that might do the same thing, given a different circumstance to another person. And when I think about my journey, and I always thought of myself as a good person <laughs> growing up, you know, I try and I try to serve people. And, and yet, um, when I came to faith, the first thing I, I remember realizing was that my, I have this selfishness, you know, my selfish heart. heart. And William Blake in his, epic, beautiful poem, Jerusalem said, my selfish heart marches against thee, deceitful, to meet thee in his pride. And I read that and I was like, wow, that's me. I have this heart that wants to be good, but I don't know how. Every time I want to love my wife or love the other person, I end up kind of circling up this, these reasons why I should take care of myself. And my selfhood heart is, is so strong, right? It is just Darwinian. And it's survival mechanism. And when, when we face this limited resource environment, when we are fearful that somebody's going to take away our territory and our safety, this thing will come up in anger, want to defend what I love, what I care for, and that's how culture wars begin. It's under good terms. All good people thinking about what they value the most and then yet they began to think of how to demonize the other side to protect this territory of culture that has been infringed upon, invaded upon, we are fearful, what happens if they, the enemies, take over? This a survival instinct kicks in. And at that moment, there are some just things you do, and those are, that's why I'm saying you're, you're not a doormat you, you know, to step on. But there is certainly this other side, this ugly side that kicks in. And we think about the old Jewish term, eye for eye, right? We, we want to inflict vengeance upon those who hurt us. And uh, after 9-11, um, becoming all of a sudden a ground zero residence, and thinking about, do we move out? Our kids were in middle school. Um, we could have moved out to here, <laughs> let's say. And not live in that zone, war zone anymore. But we stayed, we decided to, and I think the, the residual trauma of that is still being felt by both of us, Judy and I. I'm thankful that she's a, my wife is a psychotherapist. <laughs> and she's good at identifying this trauma um, signs and uh, but at the same time, you know, the question is, the Taliban, you know, who created, used their imaginations, right, to 
create this havoc, destruction, utter destruction of downtown New York City, and, and more if they had their way. Am I, am I to love my enemy when I'm faced with that? The ashes of ground zero, I'm walking on people being pulverized by this unjust act of war, of terror. And the Lord began to speak to me, and much of what I write in Culture Care comes out of my lectures that I, I'm visibly wrestling with these issues and saying, we are, you know, we are embarking on this war now in Afghanistan and Iraq and more. Um, this trying to correct what happened, the injustice that was that was caused, and in Washington D.C. there's this culture wars happening, and I began to see that culturally we we are not any different in how we react against these terrors that come our way. We're inflicting the same kind of violence back to them. Now, I'm not a pacifist, so um, I do believe in some cases that we do have to protect people. I believe in police <laughs> um, officers being around. But at the same time, the Lord began to force me towards thinking about, well, what, what is this reality of fear that we are living in today, you know? And, and how is that um, an issue so much of our hearts, and, and this is a spiritual condition through which we, as, a, as followers of Christ, can wrestle with, but how much of it is that is cultural, determined by cultural context and cultural conditions? And we, we are kind of, you know, what happens is that when things are in, in, in the air, um, when there's a cultural norm, 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 we don't think about those things. So we, we end up doing exactly what, the, the, if the air is toxic, we breed that toxicity and we begin to act upon it unconsciously. And this has happened in history. If you study what happened with Nazi Germany or uh, Japanese um, army, the nationalism, or, or China, or any, every nation has experienced this reality of being drawn into conflict. And we experience that personally, right? Every day we, we react. We have these knee-jerk reactions. And that's when you pause. <laughs> Stop. Right? And pray. What is it that causing you this fear? Where does that come from? And what is that mechanism that we created to counter that fear? And the Bible calls this an idol. Okay? An idol is a good instinct that God has given us, but we turn them into uh, uh, something that controls us to replace God with that mechanism. Uh, that we are very comfortable doing this. And uh, uh, we, we, we make these idols, uh, Calvin said, we are idol, our hearts are idol factories. You know? We create these. Now, idol making is an imaginative work that requires us 
to create the enemy that may not be there. <laughs> okay, so we are driven by fear and we expand this, this, this vision that we have of that fear into what might happen if this continues and we create a greater, uh, more powerful enemy. And then sometimes what we do is we put that on somebody else, <laughs> that, that fear. And that person becomes our enemy, whether he or she is our neighbor, whether he or she um, might be of another race, or another uh, tribe. We end up labeling that person and demonizing that tribe. And this happens all the time. Jesus challenged us this morning is to follow this impossible command. But how, we might ask. How do we do this? Well, this passage gives us a hint. And what I'm about to say is not necessarily the answer. But it is a path that we can take. This uh, verse 43 to uh, verse 48 or Matthew 5 um, is uh, uh, verses, um, as I said, two impossible commands of God. One, love, love your enemies. The other one at the end, I mean, this is even harder, says, be perfect. <laughs> be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, come on, Jesus, what? I follow you, you know, I, I agree with the Sermon on the Mount, <laughs> but be perfect? I mean, I don't know, you know, really? But it's sandwiched, these two impossible commands, there's, there, there's a um, meat in the middle <laughs> of the sandwich, and that's verse 46, right? I mean, 45 where Jesus talks about this, this reality, natural condition, and, and rain, and sun. And like, you're wondering, like, okay, <laughs> love your enemies. I'm shocked by that. And then you talk about the rain and the sun shining on the godly and the unrighteous. What's that mean? I'm totally confused. <laughs> you know. Um, this, <laughs> I, I'm an artist, so I usually don't give three-point sermons. <laughs> I usually kind of, kind of go in this vortex and circle back, and people say, well, I, I didn't really understand you, you know, because you, you went from one thing to another, and then you came back, and then you, um, I'm sorry, but Jesus is doing this. <laughs> he is talking about this incredibly difficult thing challenge to us, right? Love your enemies. You know that person that you, you couldn't stand this week? You wanted to hit them? Oh, I pray for that person. And all of a sudden, he's like talking about the sun. Look at the sun. The rain comes and it doesn't discriminate. It falls on everybody. And then he goes back and says, be perfect. <laughs> Doesn't make sense, right? It's not linear. It's not a three-point sermon. It's not building up to a conclusion. What is Jesus trying to say? Well, 
this passage has been called by theologians, passages about common grace. How many of you have heard that okay, theological term, common grace? Okay. So common grace goes like this. If you need your plumbing fixed, you hire a good plumber, right? The best plumber you can find and probably the, hopefully a reasonable price. You don't, now, in some cases you do, but you don't normally ask if the person is a Christian or not, right? You want a good plumber who gives you a good deal. <laughs> now, if the person happens to be a Christian and part of your church, that's great, right? We have a bias toward brothers and sisters, but what you don't want is to have a bad plumber who's a Christian <laughs> fix your plumbing. That's really bad. You know, a plumber comes, he prays over the plumbing. Lord, fix this, because I don't know how. <laughs> and charges you for it, right? Or thinks he can or she can fix it, and then, you know, a day later, it's like even worse. Okay. Why is that common grace? Well, common grace is this. God and its wisdom gave his gifts to Christians and non-Christians. There are some people who are so gifted by God, although they don't realize this, right? They don't know where it's coming from. But they're good teachers in public schools in New York City where we send our kids. That's like so wild. Some of our friends couldn't believe it. Like, why would you send your kids to public schools in New York City? God calls us to cities. And God wants our children to be inside New York City. I want them to experience New York City as it is, raw, unpolished. But I tell you what, there's some, some of those teachers who teach this who are so dedicated. They're not getting paid much. And they get all sorts of bureaucratic you know, mess. But they're there because they love the kids. And those teachers, I tell you, one of them, okay, on the day of 9-11, my son Ty is across the street at middle school in PS 89. You can see the towers falling, people jumping off the buildings. When the first plane hit, his social studies teacher knew his brother just died because he knew where his brother worked. The plane hit right where his brother was. He stayed until the last child went home to be with his parents. He didn't question why or he didn't panic and say, I just lost my brother and I, I need to I need to go to my family. He stayed. What extraordinary teacher to do that. Is he a Christian? I don't know. But it doesn't matter. Because he's a darn good teacher. That's common grace. The problem is with common grace, um, 
theory, I suppose you can call it a theory. Um, you know, theology is that it doesn't really fit into the context. Okay, Jesus is talking about loving your enemies, and okay, so we have good people who are non-Christians, and God sends his gifts, distributes them. But what does that have to do with loving your enemies? Right? There's a kind of a gap there. And then what does it have to do with being perfect? And so I've been thinking about this wrestling for, for over 10 years. Now, some of it makes sense because you, you do see that if there is a common ground in culture, which this passage is speaking about, then you have to assume that God is operating at all levels. So if you go out into a secular world in the workplace or school, and you encounter things that are inconsistent with what happens here culturally, you, you can at least rest in the fact that God is still the master of that world, which we call the secular world. Okay, that's common grace. And that gives you a lot of, a lot of strength because even though it looks like it's not according to God's will, okay, you can still rest in the fact that we just sang about it, God is all-powerful. That doesn't change. If we are caught in Syria and as Christians we are about to be beheaded, God is still powerful. Now that's harder to say. But it's what this passage is talking about. So, how do we make sense of that? Well, I began to say this many, a few years back. Um, I think this passage is not just about common grace. I think this pa these passages are about common curse. What do I mean by that? Well, in the same way that we are blessed and good things come to us, rain and sun uh, can be good, but it can also be bad, right? Rain can cause flooding and cause damage. Sun can scorch the land and we lose our crops. Those curses also do come to Christians and non-Christians alike. Christians are not protected, it seems, from the traumas that we experience. So I just finished a book called Silence and Beauty. Um, it's based on responding to a Japanese Catholic novelist named Shusaku Endo. Endo wrote a book called Silence, which is now being turned into a film by Martin Scorsese. And because of that, I, I've been asked to write a book. Uh, 17th century Japan is what I studied in Japan. And I know the culture very well. I became a Christian through that process, and I know that there was, in 17th century, uh, began the 250 years of persecution of Christians. And they wrote about two uh, Portuguese missionaries, young priests, who landed in Japan knowing that they would be arrested, tortured, and possibly killed. They were trying to rescue their mentor, Father Ferreira, who was a giant of faith at the time. He was the 
missionary that everyone looked out to. And Japan um, back then is the end of the, the end of the world. It's 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 that last island where you can fulfill the Great Commission by going there. And but persecution began, and you began to hear stories of priests apostatizing. There was something going on, something very evil going on in Japan. And these young priests couldn't believe the news, so they took off to go to Japan, and, and the, the silence captures their journey. Well, Endo had an interesting life. He, he was born in Kobe, Japan, and um, his mother was a violinist. Um, that violin was wonderful, by the way, um, this morning. And um, he, uh, his mother was divorced. They were in Korea at the time, and, and they moved back to Kobe. Uh, his father left, and when he was 13, his mother decided that she would become a Christian. She went to a Catholic church in Japan and was baptized, and then she had her two sons baptized with her. Well, Endo talks about this later on as, you know, this, this is a, I, I had nothing to do with this, <laughs> you know. I, I was forced to uh, wear this Western clothes, you know, and, and then um, the Western religion. Um, and he struggled with his identity all his life. Um, it didn't help that he was a complete misfit in, in school. He didn't fit in, um, that, that he had this wildly imaginative uh, um, side, which turns into his storytelling, um, masterful storytelling skills. But at, back then, he was a dilettante. He, you know, he, he he was a bad student. He um, he tried to get into university, and and twelve university re rejected him right away. And he had to decide what to do. And um, he eventually got into one um, um, because he had this linguistics. Uh, Acumen. Uh, he was able to speak five languages and so forth. Very, he picked up languages very quickly. So he went. At, he went to France, uh, the first batch of students to leave Japan after after the war, to go study abroad. He's still struggling with his faith, his identity, and he doesn't. He, um, or he doesn't know why he's a Catholic, even though he's starting to understand that something kicking in in, his, in terms of his his faith uh, journey. Um, he's going to France to hope that this will become a, a Catholic tradition will help him, right, understand his faith. And of course, we know the story of Paris post-war is not a place you want to go <laughs> if you're looking for, you know, spiritual guidance. There's turmoil going on there. Uh, this secularism is is invading the universities, and 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 um, the churches are weakening and. And so he finds himself again isolated in his faith. And worse yet, he gets persecuted, uh, really discriminated against as a Japanese. And then he finds out he's sick, contracts tuberculosis. So he ends up in a hospital in Paris. Um, instead of getting his PhD, he spends a year in a hospital in an isolation ward. This student, Japanese student, who's struggling with his identity, his faith, his calling, ends up in, in, in an isolation ward in a foreign country, not being able to you know, communicate that well. Well, 
after that experience, he writes a short story called White Man, and soon after he, he, he writes another story called Yellow Man. It is about the Nazis' persecution and, and torturing of seminarians, a story he heard about. And uh, he, he wins a major award for this, uh, you know, in a country that's less than 0.1% Christian, Catholics and Protestants combined. There's no Catholic writers at the time, and yet he writes an explicitly Catholic novel, uh, short stories, about torture. <laughs> I mean, way, way to offend just about everybody, right? And silence follows after that, the same thing. It, it, just about, it just about offends everybody. But one thing that we note, and, I, and, and this is what I try to explain in my book, is going back to this passage. One thing that we note, he realized in the hospital bed, in the isolation ward, is that actually trauma is universal. He notices the little boy next to him in the isolation ward. French boy. He notices this old man trying to walk across. He's, um, he's, he's a war veteran. And he realizes that the people everywhere are suffering, that there are traumas, nationalism, and there's, there's, there's the, um, dictatorial uh, oppression all over the world. And that's where he found his language. Now, I don't know how many Japanese novelists that you have read in your lifetime. But I understand that Endo became the number one author to be translated. There are two Nobel Prize winners coming out of Japan, and those writers are not read overseas because it is so difficult to translate Japanese into English. But Endo, because he was isolated in the trauma ward in Paris, begin to think of a story in which you can actually use Japanese medical terms, descriptive terms, the language that he was hearing every day in, in the hospital ward, and he began to compose, he began to make his art from that. So when Silence came out in 1965, it was translated uh, almost in 10 years, it was translated into, uh, I think, 50 languages. And one of those ended up in the hands of Martin Scorsese as he was finishing his film, The Last Temptation of Christ, the beginning of our cultural wars days. Archbishop Moore, the Episcopal Bishop of New York, went to the screening and knew Martin Scorsese and went up to him afterwards and said, Marty, <laughs> if you want to struggle with your faith, wrestle with your faith, there's a way of doing it that closes the loop, and there are ways of doing it that opens it up. If you want to open your faith journey, read this book, Gave in Silence, by Shusakendo. Martin Scorsese became, and, and actually he was on his way to Japan, actually, to work with Akira Kurosawa's one of his last films. He read Silence on the plane. He land, by the time he landed, he knew Something has shifted in his heart. He said, he called his office, he said, we have to get the rights to this. And this was close to 30 years ago. It's very hard to make a film like this <laughs> because it does offend a lot of people. 
He had to raise all the money himself, even though he has this big name. It's high risk. Paramount only decided to distribute the film after he raised all the money. And um, it, it's, it's a life work of, of a master filmmaker struggling to understand his place in culture and faith, same way that Endo was. But this passage tells us if there is a common ground in trauma, that there's a universality in the ground zeros of the world, then it's possible to speak into that condition to love our enemies. And what Endo does is create an impossible condition by which any character and any reader reading into the character will say, this is impossible to survive, this is impossible to hold faith, this is impossible to be yourself, this is impossible to be Japanese, this is impossible to be Portuguese, it's impossible to be a human being in this context. And anybody put in that context, who knows what we'll do. But if you read a book, you have to read to the appendix. <laughs> Don't miss the appendix. Because what happens to Father Rodriguez is a seed of how we as Christians can survive and thrive in a persecuting world. How we might even love our enemies. How we might even transcend our culture and become the other. And how the sun does rise on the evil and the good. And how God sends rain to both righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward would you get? Right? Now, so the last thing we have to deal with is this uh, last impossible command. <laughs> Be perfect. <laughs> How does, does all this fit into that? The perfect word in here in Greek is telos. Telos. Telescope. Telos is the end. The perfection of God's consummation in the new creation to come. And because God chose to send Christ to us, we, in God's eyes, are there right now. There's part of us that is secure in this new heaven and new earth. Nothing can take, take that away because it's God's doing. We are secure in Christ. We can walk confidently that even though we fail, even though we might even apostatize many times in our lives, that God doesn't give up on us. He's a God of second chances, third, fourth, fifth. He's Grace is just so powerful that we don't even know how to talk about it. And that perfection is already present in a church like this. There's no reason why if you combined your creative capital, your relational capital, and maybe a few financial capital, that this room, in this place, you can change the world. 
There's no reason. God has given each of us this, that powerful reality and uh, ability because our perfection in Christ is already given to us, guaranteed, and God chose to do it that way. So a Christian life is an impossible life. <laughs> Let me repeat that. Christian life is an impossible life. It's not possible to live and follow Christ this way. But it is being perfected in Christ right now, and it is only possible if God makes it possible. And these passages tell us that not only God made this possible, that this is the path that we can follow. And if we release that power into our lives, we will be a group of people who will be known as this radically transformative agent in, in this city, in this place, that people will look to and say, who are these people who put prey on <laughs> stop sign? No. <laughs> people will say, who are these people who know how to forgive and love beyond their differences? And what's happening? That the most diverse group of people who disagree with each other, but they love each other. What, what's happening there? It's, it's not possible. And you say, well, we are here because of Christ. Christ has made it possible. I am living an impossible life. I know we are an enigma to the world. But this is what God has called us to. And God, therefore, is an artist. He is an artist, and you are all an artist of that kingdom. And that is how we live in the perfection. It's by using our imaginations and cultivating our imaginations. Right? To already live in that place. Okay? So that takes imagination. You know, faith is a substance of things hoped for. Right? So what is faith? Faith is to activate your imagination right now so that you can actually believe and live in that zone and work backwards from there. Flip it. We usually go from problems to solution. Well, this is the only manual where solution comes out to, to us first. So it's not like the world ways where we try to come up with all these solutions. And now that's important. But Christians have a distinct advantage because we know the solution. So we work backwards. We say, I am perfect in Christ. I inherit all things. I'm an heir of the great king of the kingdom. I don't have to worry about what the future holds. I don't have to worry about my, my failures. I know that in perfection of Christ, I can work in, in, in to see that unrighteous people are beautiful and even our enemies as beautiful. Let me pray. Father, this work of imagination you, uh, that you have called us to, uh, it, it seems so impossible and so difficult. Uh, and yet you have made it possible. You tell us in these words. And so would you, through your spirit, work in us. Help us to have one experience this week 
where we see this as a reality and we can come back next week uh, to talk about that with each other and, and to share how true it is. Uh, make this community into a miraculous, impossible community of love. And make this, each one of us, into an example, a shining example that will uh, stand with you uh, to the last days. So I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.